Well, welcome. We are uh, just excited to be here this morning. And as Alan said, thanks for uh, braving the uh, winter weather to come gather with the church. It, it, was, uh, it was hard last week. I mean, we ended up being um, canceled last week. Uh, we made that decision and the county canceled on us as well. And it's just, man, it's always weird for me when we don't gather as a church. I so enjoy being together uh, with you all every week. I hope you feel the same way and excited to be with your brothers and sisters to sing the songs we sing and now to spend time uh, in God's Word. So as we begin our time together, let's just pray uh, to the Lord. Father, I give you thanks that we can be here this morning, uh, Lord, that we are able to gather together, that we have the ability to do that, the freedom to do that. And so, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, my prayer is simple. I pray that the word preached, your word preached, would be effective in our hearts this morning. Lord, I believe that as the word goes out, as we open up your scriptures and we seek to understand what you've said to us, that that, through the power of the Spirit, causes our hearts to change, causes our lives then to change. So we pray that it would be effective in our hearts this morning. And Lord, I pray that as we get into this text, that we would not focus on our own abilities, but our dependence on you and your Spirit in our life to do what you've called us to do. So Lord, we're We're dependent on you. We can do nothing on our own. And so we ask you to do the work that only you can do here in this church, in this community, that we might be a merciful community to our community. So we ask you to do that work and that the time in your word this morning would be effective towards that end. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, every week we preach from God's Word, and so I just want to ask you to raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word, the Scriptures this morning, so you can read along with us. Uh, so just keep your hand up till somebody finds you, so they can hand one of those to you. And if you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. Uh, feel free to take that home with you. That's what those Bibles are there for, is so that you can actually have a copy of God's Word. Two weeks ago, uh, since we missed last week, two weeks ago, we began a new sermon series called Mercy. And if you missed that sermon, maybe this is your first time here at Sojourn or you were out of town or something, I'd really encourage you to go listen to that. It's posted on our website. It's on iTunes. You can go check it out. And the reason for that is is because that sermon really sets up this whole series that we're going to be in over these next few weeks. So I encourage you to go listen to that. But something that I said in that sermon and that I just prayed is that the goal and hope for this time in this sermon series as we open up God's word is that God would use this as a catalyst for Sojourn Church to become a merciful community to our community. That God would use his word to do that as we spend time in this sermon series. We want this series to be very practical for us, to be able to start talking about what this looks like in real life for us. We want to ask and try to answer the question, how can and should we, as a body of believers, as God's church, show radical mercy to people as people who have been shown radical mercy? How do we actually do this? So the next few weeks, we really want to be more kind of rubber meets the road kind of sermons, practical theology. In other words, where we take what we believe And see how that's lived out in our lives, in the day-to-day of real life, both as individuals and as a church. So today, this morning, we're going to spend time in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to that. I preached out of this text uh, back in the fall of 2013. Some of you were around at that point, some of you weren't. But the, the, the reason we need to jump back into this text again, we need to look at this again 
is because if we are going to be a merciful, merciful community to our community, then we need to address some of the barriers to doing that. The barriers that are in our lives, that are in our church, to keep us from showing radical mercy. And I believe one of those barriers is partiality. Partiality in our hearts, partiality in our lives, partiality in our church. And so as we open up to James this, this morning to see what he has to say and, and think about that, I, I want us to just listen to God's word. And my hope is, is that God will bring conviction to our lives. He'll bring change to our lives for his great name to go forward for, for the good of our church and for the good of our city. So with that, let's go ahead and open up to James 2 and begin to read what James has to say to us this morning. James chapter 2, I'm going to read all these verses, verses 1 through 13. James writes this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a pretty straightforward command right at the beginning of this text. James, James lays this out for us, kind of sets the tone and the focus for the whole text. He says very simply, do not show partiality. Do not show partiality. I mean, in some senses we could say, well, okay, I get that. I'm going to close up the book. We're going to be all done. We got it, James, and we can move on. Don't show partiality. But James immediately connects that to something else. He shows that partiality is connected to something else. He says, do not show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, what James does is he immediately takes a relational command, do not show partiality in the relationships you have with people, do not show partiality, relational command, and he connects that to our relationship with Christ. In other words, James is setting the stage to say that how we relate to other people should be impacted by our faith in Jesus. How we relate to other people, how we treat other people should be, must be impacted by our faith in Christ. These cannot be disconnected things. We can't say that we have a relationship with God, yet show partiality to other people. Because our faith in Christ informs all of our life, including how we treat others. 
Now, this brings up the question, what is partiality and why is this such a big deal? Well, that's what James is going to spend the rest of his time in this, these few verses talking about. And he begins by giving a helpful illustration, trying to lay out a, an example of what partiality looks like in verses 2 through 3. And we can see this, we can pretty easily picture this. We're gathered together as the church this morning, and that's James' example. He says, look, picture a, a rich person, a well-off person coming in that's well-dressed, has a gold ring. You, you spot that person, and you see him, maybe he, him or her, they're, they're new to the church. And so you say, hey, why don't you come up here? Why don't you come sit up front? We have a nice spot for you. But then right after that, someone comes in who isn't looking so good, is dressed in shabby clothing, is apparently poor from external appearances. And instead of inviting them to the front, instead what you do to them is you ask them to stand in the back, maybe sit on the floor. We can picture what's going on here. And James says, when you do this, are you not judges with evil thoughts? Now, you may be thinking, I would never do that. I mean, who would say something like that? And I hope that's the case. I hope none of you would, seeing someone come in, would tell someone to sit on the floor in the back. And while that may be true, I think showing partiality oftentimes can be more subtle. Maybe we don't overtly say something with our mouth. Maybe we don't overtly do something with our actions. But we still have partiality within our hearts and our minds. It manifests itself in other ways. We could give a definition of partiality. Help us to understand what we're talking about here. In some English translations of the scriptures, of the letter of James, instead of partiality, the word favoritism is used. So partiality or favoritism is about making a judgment on someone based on outward external appearances. Making a judgment on someone based on outward external appearances. A synonym in the negative sense would be discrimination, where we withhold something from someone because of outward external appearances. So far, we have this command. We have this example that James has given to us. And so from these four verses, we can already see kind of an overarching principle of what James is saying. And here's what it is. Any kind of partiality, any kind of favoritism, any kind of discrimination is a contradiction of the gospel and its implications in your life. Any kind of partiality, any kind of discrimination is a contradiction of the gospel and its implications in our lives. In other words, faith and favoritism cannot go together. Now you may say, how is this a contradiction of the gospel? How is it a contradiction of the implications of the gospel in my life? Well, James is ready to show us. He gives two reasons. He says, first, because God is not partial, and second, because it breaks the kingdom law of love. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 again. James says, listen, my beloved brothers. Listen, pay attention to what I'm saying. This is important. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James says, listen, pay attention. God shows no partiality. God does not discriminate against the poor. Partiality then contradicts God's economy. It contradicts the way that God does things and the way that God saves people. We can see this all throughout Scripture. We could go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, which we preached on a few weeks ago, and there we're reminded of who God is. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18 
Say this, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. We have this huge picture of God, this picture of a transcendent God, the creator God, who's the God of God, the Lord of lords, who's over everything. And then it says this about him, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. The transcendent God does not show partiality to those who are less fortunate, who maybe are not all put together. We can jump to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through verse 30. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Acts 10.34, Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6, all say the same phrase. God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Now listen, there isn't inherent value in poverty just as there's not inherent value in having wealth. That's not the point. The point is this. The world disregards and discriminates against the poor, but God does not. See, the gospel The good news of Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, and all that it accomplishes is for all people. God does not look at the outward appearance and decide because based off your outward appearance, because you have your life together, I'm going to give you salvation, I'm going to give you grace. God looks at the heart of a man. God looks at the heart of a man. And until we have received Christ, our hearts are all the same. They're made of rocks. They're made of stone. But God, by his grace, replaces that with a new heart. See, it's not what you can do for God. It's not what you bring to God. He does the choosing, and it's based on his love, his grace, his mercy, never on our social standing or status in this world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit, those who recognize their poverty spiritually. It's we have to recognize that first, that all of us are the same in that. And it's then that we receive the mercy of God. And so, we have to recognize this morning that the majority of the world is physically, materially poor. We live in an affluent area. We live in an affluent country in one of the most affluent areas in our entire country. But the rest of the world is not like Fairfax County. The majority of the world is materially poor. And when they become poor spiritually, realizing that nothing in this world can satisfy, that they need to be rescued, their hearts are primed for the gospel to take root, to recognize that their greatest need is for a savior. But the rich are often blind to this, filling their lives, and I should say filling our lives, filling our lives with things, mocking God, self-deceived in our perceived self-sufficiency where we, we mock God and we think we have our own independence which numbs the reality of our need for God and his grace. So James is saying, look, don't follow the partial and prejudiced world system, the culture you find yourself in. Instead, follow the impartial, abounding grace of our awesome God. 
the gospel is the same for every person. And every person is in desperate need of grace and reconciliation. The gospel is impartial. It doesn't require something of you first. It has no conditions. When we show partiality, then we contradict that reality. James says when we show partiality, when we discriminate against the poor, we dishonor the poor man. And when we, when we dishonor the poor man, we insult our God. Listen to this, Proverbs 17, 5. Let this just sink in for you for a minute. He says this in the proverb, and the writer of Proverbs says this, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. What is your heart's disposition to the poor man? Are you showing partiality? Are you showing discrimination? Mocking him in your mind and your thoughts? Does your political philosophy cause you to mock the poor man? Because when you do that, you insult your maker. You insult your maker. Man, for God's people, for the church to show partiality when God does not is a contradiction then of the character of God. It's a contradiction of the gospel that has saved you and the gospel that is accomplishing a work in your life, which means this is a big deal. But it's also a big deal because it breaks the kingdom law of love. James goes on in verses 8 through 9. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The royal law is the law of the king. It's the law of Christ. And fulfilling an aspect of the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. We looked at this last week. In Luke chapter 10, excuse me, two weeks ago, when the lawyer asked Jesus, what must you do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus throws the question back to him and he says, the lawyer answers, well, we have to love God with all, everything, with our whole being, every aspect of who we are. And we also must love our neighbor as ourself. And as we said, when we last gathered together, we can't do this, we really can't live this out until we've experienced the mercy and grace of God, until we've been saved by the gospel. But this also means that loving God and loving others is now an implication of the gospel. See, this command to love people is the basis of our call to show radical mercy to all people because we've received radical mercy from God. And James makes it very clear. If we show partiality, then we commit sin. Partiality is sin, and it's not minor. It's not a misdemeanor offense. It's a capital offense. James says when we transgress any aspect of the law, we transgress all of it. It's just as serious then as murder. It's just as serious as adultery. And we need to let that sink in. Partiality is not a respectable sin. It's a deadly sin. It's a deadly sin. And God takes it seriously. And so should we. Because when we show partiality, we are not loving our neighbors as ourselves. When we show partiality, then we are not loving our God when we show partiality, we contradict the gospel and its implications in our life. And in light of this, James gives an exhortation. Verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Partiality is not to be a part of God's people or Jesus' church, but you, if you are in Christ, if you've been redeemed, if you've been given a new heart and made a new creation, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, the Holy Spirit who convicts you and guides you and teaches you, if that's all true for you, then act in a manner that's consistent with the freedom you've received in Christ. 
We are all violators of God's law, but Christ has come to rescue us from and out of our law-breaking. And he does this by obeying God perfectly and dying in our place. And he has set us free from our sin and its, and its consequences. What that means is that we can now obey his call and his commands because he has changed us and he is changing us. We can be a people who show no partiality, no discrimination, because we are recipients, recipients of impartial, unconditional love, grace, and mercy. This is a serious matter, and so James gives a serious and explicit warning. The beginning of verse 13, he says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. This is the end verse of Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What James is saying is the, is the opposite of that, the, the inverse of that. If we show mo- no mercy and instead judge others, then what we should expect from God is not mercy but judgment in like manner. Because as we said before, what a lack of mercy, what partiality betrays about the reality of our heart, the reality of our life is that maybe we haven't actually experienced the mercy of God in our own life. We're living for ourselves, giving worship to ourselves instead of the only one who is worthy of all worship. But James reminds us again, mercy triumphs over judgment. And it does this in more ways than one. Our mercy in our lives as we display mercy to others triumphs over our judgment of other people. And as we display that, as we give mercy to others, what that reveals is that we actually have experienced the mercy of God. And God's mercy in your life always triumphs over your shortcomings. Man, that's the good news of the gospel. You and I are not going to be able to live perfect lives. Even as God is changing us and calling us to these things, we're going to fail and falter along the way. But in the midst of that, even in the midst of that, God reminds us again that his mercy always triumphs over our shortcomings. Now, like I said the last time we were together, I, I don't think at face value that any of us would disagree that we're called to be a merciful people. And likewise, this week, I don't think any of us at face value would disagree with the fact that it's not good for God's people to show partiality, that we shouldn't do that. But I don't want us just to breeze past this. Because, Sojourn, if we are going to be a merciful community to our community, then we cannot show partiality. It cannot have a place in our church, which means it cannot have a place in our hearts. And that's the root of it, is in our hearts. If we are partial, and I really do believe that at some level all of us struggle with partiality in some way, it begins in our hearts. And it's out of our hearts that is what influences our actions in our life. And so we must address our hearts We must ask God to change our hearts through the power of the gospel and through the work of the Holy Spirit to make us even aware of where we might have tendencies towards partiality, tendencies towards discrimination in our life based on outward external appearances. A key effect of sin is to create separation and division between people because all people bear the image of God. All people bear the image of God, but sin in our heart and the tactics of the enemy seek to distort that truth, twist that reality. And instead of seeing all people as valuable and valued, we can in an instant, in an instant, without even thinking about it, categorize people into better or worse, like or dislike. And the barrier walls go up around us. 
Listen, I think we need to be honest with ourselves. We are comfortable around people who look like us. We are comfortable around people who are like us. And we are uncomfortable around people who are different than us. But listen, comfort is not found in people. It's not found in the company you keep. It's found in the God who saves you, the God of all comfort, whose people, who, whose people are made up of the poor and the rich, the weak and the strong, the minorities and the majority cultures. See, Sojourn, we have to remember that what binds us together as a family, as brothers and sisters, is not the maximum amount of similarities. What binds us together as God's people is the radical nature of God's mercy and grace. That's why we exist as a church. And sometimes, though, I think we're theologically inconsistent. We, we champion, we celebrate, we sing about God's sovereignty, God's grace over our lives, that God saves us, that God will change us. But oftentimes we look at others around us who maybe are in a rough place in life, who are, who are in difficult and dire circumstances, and we shake our heads, we look down our noses, and we think, man, they just need to get their act together. They need to try harder. They need to do better. But it's in that moment that we need to continue to remember who we were and who we are now and realize that when we have that thought, when we have that attitude, that it's wicked because we were broken and Christ welcomed us, so we welcome the broken. We were poor and Christ welcomed us and so we welcome the poor. We were destitute and Christ welcomed us so we welcome the destitute. We were foreigners to God's family and Christ welcomed us so we welcome the foreigner. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you were according to the world's standards. Sin made all of us orphans and God's grace alone is what brings us into his family. We come as we are to Christ. Why in the world would we ever expect or ask others to come to us in a different way? Christ's mercy does not come for those who have it all together. It comes for those whose lives are broken. And to receive God's mercy, to receive God's grace, as we've said before, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. And maybe that's you this morning. You might even look, at, look like you have it all together on the outside, but in, in, on the inside you are a mess. And Jesus says to you this morning, come to me. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Man, do you need rest today? You can quit trying to put up a facade of having it all together. That's when we recognize that we don't, that we come to Jesus. So tell Jesus today that you need him. Tell Jesus today that you want him, that you know how badly you need his mercy and his grace, how badly you need a Savior, how much you need to experience the love of God the Father. There is no one too far gone for the overcoming and outrageous grace and mercy of God. But listen, there's also no one who has it together enough to not need the overcoming and outrageous grace of God. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. And Jesus rose again. And that empty tomb reminds us week in and week out as we remember that Christ didn't stay in that grave, that he rose again. It reminds us that one day he will reconcile all things to himself. And there's an eternal inheritance for those who are poor in spirit, who recognize that they have nothing apart from what God gives them. And that is life with God forever. 
And so, when we believe this truth, it should affect the deep crevices of our hearts. And it's then that we treat anyone, we can treat anyone with love and respect, gentleness and kindness, mercy and grace. A truth that we have to understand, that we have to recognize, is that a church that is partial or discriminates is a church that is devoid of the gospel. A church that is partial or discriminates is a church that is devoid of the gospel. Because it's the gospel alone that overcomes the barrier of partiality and discrimination. It's the gospel alone that enables us to be a merciful community to our community. On the front page of our website, there's something that we've said here uh, throughout the life of this church, and it's this, that we want to be a community that is only explainable because of the gospel. That's what I want for our church. I want us to be a community that is only explainable because of the gospel, that how we treat one another, how we love one another, that we're made up of a bunch of people who don't all look the same, who aren't all the same that come from different backgrounds, that come from different places, that are in different places in life right now, that we come together and we love each other so much, that we care for each other so much, even with our radical differences, that it leaves the world scratching its head. That we're a community that's only explainable by the gospel, that no one can look in here and say, oh, I know why they're together. It's because they all are of this political persuasion, because they're all from this socioeconomic status, because they all look like this. No, I want them to scratch their heads, and all they can answer is it must be Jesus. It must be Jesus why all these people are together. And so what does that look like for our church? What does that look like for our lives? We need to recognize that this impacts us both corporately as the church and individually. James' example, the first thing that we see is just our gatherings and our community groups. How does this live out and what does this look like as we gather together, together as the church? As we gather together in community groups throughout the week, he gives that example in verses 2 through 3 of the church gathered. I want our gatherings, I want our community groups to be welcoming, loving, and merciful environments for anyone and everyone. The poor in our society are forever told to sit in the corner. They're told to stay away, to to, to not be seen or heard. But the church should be the people, and the church gathered should be the place where that is never, ever the case. It's never the case. We have to honestly look in our hearts and answer this question. Is our gathering on Sunday, is your community group a place and an environment where the poor or homeless person would feel welcomed? What's the answer to that question? What about the prostitute? What about the stripper? How about an illegal immigrant? Is your community group, is our church gathered together, is it a welcoming place, a merciful environment for those people? Are we willing to invite broken people from our community, from Fairfax, into this community and to show genuine love and care, gentleness and respect and patience, not condoning sin that might be present or destructive behavior, but longing to see God's grace and mercy break into their lives? See, Jesus' command is to love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. How would you want someone to treat you? What if it was you? What would you want someone to do for you? How will you treat people different from you when they come into our gathering on Sunday? How will you treat someone different than you when they come to sit 
around the couch or around the living room in your community group? How will you respond to the homeless man or the poor mother, the drug dealer or the drug addict, the transgender prostitute? And I hope by God's grace and power that we will respond like Jesus and like Jesus that Sojourn Church will be called the friend of sinners. A key thing that we have to understand is that a community that is only explainable because of the gospel should be a community that is attractive to people who are desperately in need of the gospel. Sojourn, when we receive and welcome all kinds of people, it shows that we are becoming more like our God who does the same. He is not partial. He cares for the down and out and the destitute. He cares for you. And he cares for me. I want Sojourn to be a church that shows and gives mercy that isn't just possible from a distance, but causes us to have to reach out and actually engage with people, to reach out and have to touch someone. What this means is that we have to move towards people just as God moved towards us. Inviting them into our lives, inviting them into our community. A quote that I read in the midst of studying says this, Hospitality replaces hostility as the stranger becomes a guest. Hospitality replaces hostility as a stranger becomes a guest. A community that is only explainable because of the gospel sees all people, no matter who they are or what they look like, as guests. And in so doing shows hospitality. In so doing shows and gives mercy. But let's not just make people guests in our church community. Let's make them guests in our lives as well. And this might press on us a bit more because it's much more personal. It hits a little bit closer to home. See, often those who are in need, both physically and spiritually, may be fearful or feel uncomfortable coming to gather with the church they may be fearful or uncomfortable coming and being a part of your community group, but they might be willing to be a guest in your life for you to be their friend. This means mercy can't just be an activity. It's not just a box we check. It must be a part of our life, flow out of every aspect of our life. And so as people who exist out in the world, who live in society, who come and go all around the Fairfax and Northern Virginia area, what it means is that we have to look to show mercy to people who are on our path to people we encounter day in and day out. But we may also need to change our path to evaluate how and where we go. See, the nicely manicured lawns, the nice cars, the nice shopping centers that litter Fairfax County present a facade of stability in the lives of the people who live here, but the broken walk and drive the streets of our city every day. Stop, look, listen, do you slow down enough to do these things? To look around you, to listen beyond the surface presentation. Maybe we need to look to develop a whole new way of just looking at our world if we're going to be ministers of mercy. A line from a song that I love says this. It's, it's a prayer. This song is a prayer to the Lord. It says this, Lord, help me to see them. See the people around me. Lord, help me to see them the way you see me. With your eyes, I know I would learn to see, see beyond the fall into the need. See, sometimes I think we need to slow down just to be able to see behind the brokenness to the image of God in a person and know that they don't deserve mercy any more than you and I do, but to give it immeasurably just as it's been given to us. 
Let's not wait for someone to be able to articulately, articulately express a need that they have in their life. Let's look for it. Let's engage it and invite people into our lives. This past two weeks, in two different occasions, I've had two homeless men come to my door. God's giving me opportunity to practice what I'm preaching. Knock on my door. And I have to ask the question, do I, do I invite him into my home? Is that a good thing to do? Is that a bad thing to do? Should you invite a homeless person into your home? Should you turn your car around and go ask someone if they need a ride? Should you give money to the guy on the corner in your city asking for it? Listen, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that question. But Sojourn, I want us to be asking the questions. Because I think so often we can go about our day and never even consider how God might ask you to show mercy. How God might be asking you to be a neighbor to someone, regardless of how they might present themselves to you. I want us to lift up our eyes to see around us and ask, how can I show mercy today? How can I be that person's neighbor? To close, I want to give you just two real-life examples of churches that I think we can learn from. The first church is a church of a good friend of mine uh, that he's a part of, a member of. And this church exists in a part of town that's uh, a little bit lower income, a little bit uh, poorer part of town. But most everyone in the church is, uh, is affluent, is middle or upper middle class white people. And they drive to this place to gather as the church. But some of the people in the church started to feel convicted by that because they were going into this community to gather as a church, but never interacting with that community. And so they began to feel just convicted. I mean, we need to reach out to the people around us to see the importance of reaching out to this community. So they started to do that, and some of the kids in the, in the neighborhood started coming and gathering with the church, started coming participating in the youth group, and some people in the church became concerned. They went to the leadership and said, look, I, this is good and all, but I don't want my kids hanging out with those kids. I don't want my kids hanging out with those kids. They come from broken homes, from bad situations. I let's help them, but I don't want my family to actually have to interact with them. And the leadership said, this is what God's called us to do. We're called to make disciples of all people. And so the same people continued to express concerns and started threatening, well, we're going to stop giving if you keep doing this. And eventually, they left the church over it. Sojourn, that's wicked. It's wicked. Let's remember what James says, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Another church that comes to mind in this as an example for us is a church that Amy and I were a part of when we moved to Louisville for seminary that we became members of and were serving in. And this church, where it gathered, was in a lower-income part of town. There were a lot of poor people around this church building. But this church didn't drive in and drive out on Sundays. It loved that community. Many of the pastors of that church started to move into that neighborhood. And then members of the church started to move into that community, into that area, fixing up homes and planting roots in that community that was both poor physically and spiritually. And that church began to go out into the neighborhood to its neighbors and ask, how can it serve them? How can it love on them? 
It began meeting physical needs and showing mercy, whether that was through food and clothing or fixing a, a leaking roof of, of a shut-in in their neighborhood or someone who just didn't have the resources to do that. It put on classes to teach people about personal finances. It puts on multiple medical clinics throughout the year to give medical care of all kinds to people who can't otherwise afford it. And now that church, existing in that neighborhood, has homeless men who are worshiping there. Now that church has poor families who gather together and go forward to take communion alongside the affluent. That church is being a merciful community to its community, and I believe God is glorified by that. But it's been hard. They've been burned by people. It's costly. It's been uncomfortable at times when someone is in the lobby of the church asking people for money. But it's always handled with grace. It's always handled with mercy, always handled with love and patience because they know that's why they're there is to be a merciful community to their community. Listen, cultivating a culture of mercy in the church takes time. Cultivating a culture of mercy in the church takes time, but listen, you are the church. You are the church, which means that you and me together need to consider what God is calling us to. We need to address this. We need to think about this. We need to pray and work towards this end. And for most of us, including myself, that begins with repentance. Because when we fail at being merciful, we must remember the mercy and grace we, the poor in spirit, have received. And in a fresh way, we need to repent and believe the gospel again and see it continue to do the work that it does in our life to change our hearts, to change our lives, and recognize that as we repent, that the grace and mercy that we continue to receive, that God never cuts off from us, is what compels us to go and show grace and mercy to those around us, to all people, no matter who they are. I asked you two weeks ago to pray, I asked you to be attentive to the Spirit, and that's applicable today, to be attentive to the Spirit, to pray, to ask God's help, that we would listen to what is God asking you to do? What is he asking me to do? What is he asking us to do as his people? The song I quoted earlier goes on to say, it says, with your eyes I know I would learn to see. See beyond the fall and to the need. With your eyes I know I would learn to see. See the only problem here is me. Then it says this line, Maybe you won't come packaged perfectly, but you could be inside anyone I meet. Sojourn, by God's grace and power, let's not be a pretentious, partial people, but a humble, gracious, merciful, loving family. Let's be a community that is only explainable because of the gospel. When we come to the table every week, it should remind us of something important. And today especially, it should remind us of something important. And that's this. There is no partiality at the foot of the cross. All are welcome and Jesus' body and blood are sufficient for all people who accept it by faith. All you need is need. All you need is nothing to receive God's extravagant mercy and grace. What this meal symbolizes the the bread and the cup, what it symbolizes is what brings us together and what, what it symbolizes is, is what sends us out. We come together to the table this morning as those who bring nothing but have everything in Christ. Man, let that blow you away. Let that refresh you this morning, Sojourn. 
And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to receive the elements. And the reason for that is because it doesn't mean anything to you. These, these elements don't save you. They don't give you God's mercy and grace. They're a picture of what God's already done in your life. And so instead of coming forward to take these elements, if you don't yet know Christ, what we want you to do this morning is to experience God's grace, to take Christ. As I said earlier, tell Jesus that you need him. Just pray, ask God to save you today that you might be a recipient of his mercy and his grace so that next week that you could come forward as a new brother or sister in Christ and be a part of this family. If you have questions about what it means to know Christ, please come talk to me or come talk to any of our other leaders. That's why we're here as a church. And those of you that will come forward, you can either come forward to these front two stations. There's also two places in the back you can go. You can come when you're ready and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Sojourn, remember this morning, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Father, we, at least I know I am once again just blown away by the fact that you would save me, a wretch like me. But Lord, I think even in the midst of being blown away by that, it just reveals something in the reality that I think there's still something I have to do to earn that favor with you. There's just still something I have to give you, I have to offer to you to want to accept me. Father, if that's true in any of our hearts or our lives, I pray that you would crush that, that we would truly understand grace, that we would truly understand mercy, that while we were dead, You poured out your mercy on us. While we were running from you, while we were still sinning, that Christ died for us. And Lord, that as we recognize that, as we bask in that, that we would look around us and not require anyone to come a certain way, to present themselves in a certain way, to have it all together before they can be a part of this community, before they can come hang out with us as we gather on Sundays or come to our community group. That we would truly be a community that says all are welcome because we know that all are in desperate need of your grace. So Lord, I pray, continue to ask that you would make us a merciful community to our community. Crush partiality and discrimination that might exist in our hearts, our lives, or our actions. We repent of that this morning. We ask for your mercy in that this morning. And Lord, help us to live in a way that's pleasing to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you love us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.